It's uh, great to be with you and thankful to God that you're here. And for those of you who are online, it is uh, a joy to be with you in worship. I can't wait till we can continue to worship together face to face, but thankful to God that we have this ability to worship both here in person and online. If you do have a Bible, we encourage you to turn to the book of Romans. We are in a study in the book of Romans, and to, today we find ourselves in Romans chapter 1. So the way it rolls here at the church is that we just take books of the Bible and we just work through it. So we allow God's Word to dictate what topics, what subject matters we come to, and so today is no different. This is Uh, Just our journey through the first chapter of Romans is where we find ourselves. Today the sermon will be over verses 24 through 27, but just for context, I'm going to read verses 21 to the end of the chapter, okay? But I just wanted to say, uh, while you're turning there or clicking there, uh, how thankful to God I am for J.D. Loftus, who's throat is healing, um, couldn't do the whole worship set, but was able to sing his first song in a little bit, so I was thankful for that, and with a lot of people out this weekend, um, I'm happy to fill in, but also wanted to say a quick shout out to Sloan uh, back there, who is running our sound and visual all at once, so I am thankful to God for his sacrifice, he did not ask me to say that, but I'm thankful to God for uh, his labors, and um, yeah, just such a gift and how I see Jesus in him. So, here's what, um, here's what we find ourselves. Romans chapter 1. The book starts with the faithfulness of God to his people and sending his son Jesus. He starts with the fact that God loves us so much that he gave his son to die on a cross to demonstrate that love in flesh and blood. And the power of God that is the good news that anyone who would turn from sin and trust in Him can be saved, rescued from the sin that nailed Him to the cross, the sin that demands our punishment. Paul is longing to get to Rome, writer of this book, this book is God's Word, the infallible Word of God. He's longing to get to Rome, but he's stuck in Corinth at the command of God to continue to preach the gospel there. And so while he's longing to get to Rome, he writes this letter. And here's where we find ourselves. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17 are the good news. The good news is power. But Romans chapter 18 shifts the script and runs us all the way to chapter 3. Chapter 118 goes to chapter 3 to tell us that there is some bad news. We are desperate. We are sin sick, both Jews and non-Jews. And so now we come to Romans 1.21, and let's read the Word of God. I'll read it for us. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be Wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up. You'll hear that three times. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Now for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, third time he says it, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are all full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. 
though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. These words right here are a picture. A picture of the brokenness of our world and the sickness of our own hearts. Because humanity did not see fit to acknowledge God and traded Him away like an unwanted shirt so they could try something new. This passage begs the question, when will we lament? When will we grieve? Not first for how we have been treated or how we have treated others but how we all have treated God. Let's pray. Father, we begin in a heavy place because Your Word begins there. We have rejected You. We have called ourselves wiser than You. We have questioned Your goodness. We have broken Your commands. We have acted ashamed of Your love. We have acted like we know better. Father, forgive us. You are the Creator, and yet we, the creation, think we know better than You. It's like a two-year-old telling his parents how the world works and what is best. We just have no clue, and we must repent. Forgive us, Father, for how we think so highly of ourselves and humanity and so low of You, the Creator, the One who spoke the world in existence, the One who gives us life and breath and purpose and meaning. And You didn't just talk about love. You are love. You demonstrated love by coming to us in our sin-sick rebellion And you died for us. And then you powerfully overcame death and Satan and sin. So that, Father, I just ask that what would happen is we would acknowledge our rebellion. We would turn to you. We would trust you. We would worship you. And that many today would be saved from the wrath to come. Thank you. Thank you for this amazing good news that there's hope for sinners like me. Like every one of us, there's hope for this dying world. Help us in this moment to see you. Help us to see your heart. And by your Holy Spirit, cause us to walk in your ways. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is true love? (laughs) True love. We watch TV shows and it tells us what true love. It's that butterfly feeling in the stomach. It's, it's that romantic, you know, just rush of adrenaline for someone else. That this is true love. It's someone who completes you and makes up for every longing that you've ever had. It's true love. I looked in the Urban Dictionary. There's your spot to look up what true love is. It's a feeling created when two souls are drawn together. Goes on to say, making a sacrifice for them is no struggle if that's what you know you must do to be together. All you will ever want is to be together. You want nothing more than to share a life, a home, a family in the guaranteed happiness of the future. You are able to always say, I love you, and know deep down in your heart of hearts that this is so real. That's true love. So no wonder when you don't feel love for that person, you've now what? Quote, fallen out of love, right? But what if love were different? What if I told you that you, your only understanding of love, if this is it, it shows you've never truly known love at all. What if 
What if love for God and not love for self or others is primary? What if only there in God you could find love that is deeper and fuller and the source of your satisfaction? What if love for others can come with wonderful feelings but was not driven by or defined by feelings? What if love was a choice to consider others better than yourself? And sometimes that choice, an act in such a way that goes against how you feel in the moment for the good of somebody else. What if love is beautiful and romantic at times and can be close, but what if it's also really hard and not utopic? What if that's love? When we love others, hear this loud and clear, When we love others apart from God, we put a weight on them that only God was meant to hold. We crush people. We crush churches. We crush leaders, spouses, children, friends with divine expectations that only God can shoulder. Some of you have felt that weight. You felt that weight, and you know how impossible it is to be all that that person or all that that group is asking from you. We ask people or churches or spouses or kids to fill the void, to provide satisfaction, to bear the weight of our meaning and purpose and our craving for approval and fulfillment. This weight exhausts. This weight brings distance, not intimacy. And this weight frustrates all because it's the weight of worship. It's the weight of worship. We are in that moment worshiping the creation rather than the Creator. And it's not love. It's codependence. It can be usury. It can have good moments, but at the end, no one can stand up under the weight of worship because the weight of worship was only meant for the shoulders of Jesus. Today's sermon is entitled, Worship, Sex, and True Love. And so, this is where Romans 1 begins. Romans 1 begins with humanity has exchanged God for what God has made. We've begun to worship the creation rather than the creator. Now the great news of the book of Romans, the great news of the Bible is Jesus has come into the world fulfilling all the promises made about a coming Savior in the Old Testament. He came and put God's love on display. God Himself came to save sinners, to die in their place so that God could be both just and justify, make not guilty sinful people. Cosmic treason and injustice, which is what our sin is, it must be punished. All of us understand the desire that wrong things have to be punished. But in God's love, instead of crushing us, He crushed His Son. In our place, so that all who would trust in His sacrifice alone in their place, not their works, not their ability to be better than their neighbor, but trust in Jesus alone, they can be set free, forgiven, made new. But we have rejected Him. We've rejected that news and we have worshipped ourselves or creation rather than the Creator. And Romans 1.18 says the just wrath of God is poured out. It's poured out upon all humanity. Because what has happened is God made Himself known in creation. He's made Himself known in creation. Anybody can go out in creation and they can see God's eternal power that there's something more powerful than them and His divine nature. There is a God. That is what the pandemic was meant to communicate to us. There is something beyond us that we cannot control. You can't speak 
and make humans. You can't speak and make trees. You can't speak and make viruses go away. That's not how it works. There's someone greater than you, and it is God Himself. He's not just the creator of trees and grass and animals, though He's a creator of people. And everything gets its meaning from their Creator. Creators give purpose and meaning. And so no wonder our world is in a massive sea of confusion and insecurity when they're trying to find their purpose outside of their Creator. It won't work. And so, what have we done? We've seen that the world is broken and we've tried to fix it. But we have rejected Him. Placed our hope in created things, in humanity or in nature. And it says in the Scriptures that our minds have become futile in their thinking. And this is how it works. When you use something differently than it's supposed to be used. It doesn't get stronger, it gets weaker, more fragile. So if you want to improve your basketball skills, you don't go and sit down and read a book on basketball. You've got to go out and actually practice and do the work. If you just sit, you will not increase or improve in what you're doing. The same with your muscles. Your muscles do not get stronger if you say, I'm, not going, I'm going to buck all conventional wisdom and I'm going to sit on the couch and watch my biceps get bigger. That's not how it's going to roll. It doesn't roll that way. And here's the image I had. Okay, so I want to get better at math. So rather than actually doing math problems and study them, I'm going to go to the math book and I'm going to rip out every page in the math book and start throwing them away in the hopes that somehow that's going to make me better at math. Is that how it works? No. All you've participated in is a massive futility endeavor of destruction. That's what you've just done. And this is what the Scriptures say. There's a dulling effect that happens. When you don't operate as things are supposed to operate. But humanity has rejected God. And it says in verse 21, we have dishonored Him. Verse 21, it says we have failed to thank Him as Creator King. And we've failed to adore Him as Lord. Verse 22, we are claiming to be wise in and of ourselves. And saying we don't need Him. And we think we're getting smarter, but we're getting dumber. That's what it says in verse 21. You're becoming futile in your thinking. And we think that we're solving the world's problems. And yet, we're only diving deeper and deeper and being part of the problem. We think what we can touch somehow is superior to the Creator Himself. And so, in God's perfect Word, we find ourselves in the text today Paul here in verse 25 summarizes what we have read in verses 21 through 23. Verse 25 says this, Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. You flip back up to verse 24. It says, Therefore He gave them over to the lust of their heart. Why did he do that? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Our problem is a worship problem. We have a worship disorder. Before you have any anxiety disorder or bipolar disorder or any other disorders, the primary disorder that's shared by all humanity is a worship disorder. Worship is this. It is we are worshiping something that we find our ultimate satisfaction in that thing. When we find our ultimate satisfaction, our ultimate peace and hope in that thing, we are worshiping that thing. So just assess the last time you got intensely angry. Or just assess the last time you got overwhelmingly anxious. Or just assess the last time you got not just sad, but despairingly sad. All those things are like smoke in the distance that tells you that if you follow the smoke, there's fire. That fire is a worship disorder. 
You have placed the weight of worship on something and it has made you angry or anxious or despairing of even life itself. For some of us, it's getting our own way. For others of us, it's being loved the way we want. Craving for comfort or approval or power. We worship people. We worship our spouses or kids or friends' approval or the approval of society at large. Sometimes we worship things. Just see if you let somebody use your phone. You kind of don't want to give it away. Let somebody use your car. I I don't want to give it away. There's this sense that we can make things more important than people and people more important than God. Think about your job or your status or your home or a car or clothing or image, finances. And these can be really good things. These can be really good things, but as one pastor famously said, when a good thing becomes a God thing, that's a bad thing. It's worship disorder. It's a worship disorder. And here's how we get there. We look at the world and we know it's not like we want it to be. But here's where it breaks. We don't trust and surrender our heart to the Creator. We try to fix it and solve it ourselves. I'm pretty sure nobody sets out at the beginning of their day to say, I want to worship worship something that will ultimately destroy me. I don't think you wake up saying that. But that's what we do. That's what we do. And we do it because we're blind. We do it because we cannot see. And I'm not talking about with your eyes. I'm talking about spiritual eyes. We cannot see. We're blind to what's within. We're blind at really how bad sin is. We're blind to our idolatry. It's when we worship the creation rather than the creator, it's called idolatry. God is the only one worthy of worship. And we have bought into the lie that something other than God Himself can satisfy. That's what verse 25 says. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. God says, I alone can satisfy you. You need my nearness, not my distance. And we believe the lie. No, we need our autonomy. We need our freedom. We need to be away from anything that would stop or constrict us. We believe the lie that we can find satisfaction outside of God Himself in some other person or some other experience or some other job or some other bank account number. Whatever it is, we believe the lie. And we've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Worship and serving, serving the creation, the creature, rather than the creator. How do we deal with the blindness? What do we do? How do we see? It's what we're doing right here. We open up God's Word. God's Word has been given to us to teach blind people how to see. Because the only way we learn to see is when God opens our eyes that He is beautiful and He is sufficient and He is worthy and He's better than any other secondary thing we could give our lives to. The way we begin to see is in His Word. And so... Rather than worship and serving God, we have worshiped and served the creation, and this idolatry has broken the world. And because of this idolatry, God says there's consequences. He says, I will give them over. Look at verse 24. I will give them over in the lusts of their hearts. There was a leash of restricting grace. I will keep you back from experiencing the full desire that you have because I know those desires are so broken and they will destroy you, but you keep pulling. It's like the dog that keeps pulling, keeps pulling, keeps pulling. And he says, I will just let you have what you want. I'll let you have it so that you will see how destructive it is. To live apart from me. And dear friends, 
It is this that has ripped the fabric of the human soul and of our society apart. Exchange the truth about God for a lie. Worship the creation rather than the creator. And God says, I'll give you over to what you want. I don't think you'll like the result. And so he says in verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So not only does this passage teach us how we were created to find our joy and satisfaction in God alone through worship and adoring Him, but it also teaches us about God's design for sexuality. About God's design for our bodies. Because this is what He gave them up towards. The lust of their hearts to impurity. The dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. I was talking with Ron Locke this week. who will be preaching uh, the end of this passage uh, next week. And as I was talking to him... Uh, he said, everything we do, we do in our bodies. And I was just like thinking, processing that sentence. I was like, yeah, that's, that's right. Everything we do, we do in our bodies. Who gave us our bodies? Okay. But God did. Thank you. That's right. From the mouth of a child in the front row. Or a second row. I couldn't tell. God gave us our bodies. And so that means everything I do... In my body is for who? For God, my Creator. But here's what Romans 1 paints the picture of. It's this person who says, well, if I can get over the Creator or around the Creator, then my body becomes my body and not His. Ranjur said, the tendency is this, most of the sins we do in our bodies, we first try to justify those sins by denying something about God. God didn't say this, or God doesn't have control over this in my body, so I will do with my body what I wish to do with my body. If you can get around the Creator, then your body is your body. No, your body is God's. And because He is Creator, He has said whatever you do with your body, He has exclusive rights to your body. Your body is His. All humanity is given over to their sexual lusts. Dishonoring God with their bodies. Here's the point of verse 24. We have all exchanged the truth about God for a lie, worshiping the creation rather than the Creator, and we have all been given over to the lusts of our hearts. We are all sexually broken. All of us. We are given over to the lust of our hearts. That sexual brokenness comes out in all kinds of ways. Craving sex for ourselves rather than to serve another. Making sex the goal of relationships or marriage rather than friendship and an opportunity to display covenant love to a spouse. Men begin to blame women for their impurity and their lustful thoughts. Men and women treat each other as objects to be consumed rather than people to be loved. Men and women invest time and money in pornography that is the industry that is the poster child for worshiping the creation rather than the Creator. And it leads to addictions and broken marriages and painful comparisons. Leads to abuse. Part of the problem is our sexual deviance affects us all. I have some friends in the LGBTQ community, and as I talked with this one individual, he shares his story about some of the sexual and gender choices he has made stemming back to 
an abusive father who never showed love and care for him as a kid. We are broken. Our sexual brokenness can be watching TV shows, not for the story primarily, but because we have this secret attraction to the characters. It could be withholding sex to get our way within marriage. It could be perverting sex into something dirty within marriage. It can be prizing sex as what makes us valuable. If they want me sexually, then I'm worth something. And if they don't, I've got to do something until they do, because that will make me valuable. We are all sexually broken. We are dishonoring God with our bodies, and it expresses itself in different ways. The Bible says that's because we have worshipped the creation rather than the Creator, and for this reason, God gave them up. And the passage goes on to say that part of God giving them up to their sin is homosexuality. Look at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. You see the parallel. Dishonorable use of your body, and now he goes on to say dishonorable passions. And here's what those passions are. Women exchange natural relations, that means sexual relations with men, and they did what was contrary to nature. They lay with other women. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women, and were consumed with passion for other men. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The penalty he he is describing here is the giving them over, the letting out of restraining grace, and they have received the full consequences of their disordered passions that has resulted in Sex with the same gender. That's the penalty. Romans 1 could not be clearer. It could not be clearer. Sex with the same gender is against God. The Bible is consistent about this. Genesis chapter 19 is referred to in the book of Jude. Verse 7, and Jude, as he is looking at Genesis 19 and assessing Sodom and Gomorrah, he assesses that they were not only punished because of their indifference to the poor, which is a true thing, but they were judged according to Jude, look at the verse, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. They serve as an example by undergoing punishment of eternal fire. Why were they punished with eternal fire? Because of their sexual immorality and their homosexual sex. It's where we get the term sodomy from. And it's against God. Leviticus 18, verse 22. Leviticus 20, verse 13 says this, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. In both of these chapters, there are lists of other abominations like adultery, laying with your father's wife, or sleeping with your daughter-in-law. God hates these things. They're an abomination to Him. Judges 19.22 describes a very similar picture as you get in Genesis 19. And here's what you read in the book of Judges. And it is a perfect description of our culture. They quote, did what was right in their own eyes. And what happened? The result was sexual violence, same-sex relationships, and many other dishonorable uses of the body. The dishonoring use of the body is seen in 1 Timothy 1.10 which says murderers, sexually immoral, those who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, it's contrary to sound doctrine. It's contrary to the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 6.13 tells us this. The body is not meant for sexual immorality 
but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Our body is the Lord's. It is meant for Him. And Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3 says, but flee. It says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 says, flee sexual immorality. The Bible is clear. Homosexuality is a rejection of God and His ways, and there is no honest way around it. But David Platt, in his book, Counterculture, he says, but like Adam and Eve in the garden, the devil wants us to ask this question. Did God really say that? Did God really say that? That's why I went back through these verses. Yes, He did. He did really say that. But like so many things in our world, when we don't like what the Scripture says, we have to change the Bible in order to get our way. And here are people, I'll give you a few quotes that were, I found in that countercultural book by David Platt. A Protestant chaplain at Wesleyan University, his name is Gary David Comstock, he says this, this is where you have to go if you are honest with the Bible's teaching on homosexuality. Here's where he goes. He says, Not to recognize, critique, and condemn Paul's equation of godlessness with homosexuality is dangerous. To remain within our respective Christian traditions and not challenge those passages that degrade and destroy us is to contribute to our own oppression. Those passages will be brought up and used against us again and again until Christians demand their removal from the biblical canon or at the very least formally discredit their authority to prescribe behavior. What's he saying? It's got to be removed from the Bible. Because it says what it says. The only way to get around it is to take it out. Luke Timothy Johnson, professor of New Testament at Candler School of Theology at Emory University, takes it one step further. And he says this, The Bible nowhere speaks positively or even neutrally about same-sex love. But then he concludes, I think it's important to state clearly that we do. In fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture and appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. And what exactly is that authority? He says, we appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and the experience thousands of others have witnessed to, which tells us that to claim our own sexual orientation is in fact to accept the way in which God has created us. By so doing, we explicitly reject as well the premises of the scriptural statements condemning homosexuality, namely that it is a vice freely chosen, a symptom of human corruption and disobedience to God's created order. The only way to deal with the Bible is to remove those things. We would rather change the Bible than to worship the Creator. Some of you might be like, why can't we flex a little here? What does it hurt? I've got good friends that have chosen this lifestyle. Like, why do we have to speak that this is a wrong thing? Because God is clear. And God has to get the final word. And it is not love if we let somebody walk in their worship disorder that will lead to their destruction, not their joy. The world wants us to flex on many things, friends. What about the only way to get to God is through Jesus? The world wants us to flex on that and say that that's not true. There's many paths to God. But that's not what the Bible teaches. And it would lead to eternal damnation for many 
if we just stayed silent about Jesus? What about Jesus is God? He is God. And if He is God, then Jesus has demands on my own life. Of course the culture wants us to flex there. Because it creates demands on our life. The Bible is the Word of God. The culture wants us to flex there. No, it's just a good book. It implodes on itself if it's just a good book. Because it claims so much more. There's no goodness to be found if there's a bunch of lies as it compares itself to say, I am true and this is the Word of God. And it is. The world wants us to flex there. And so it makes sense. There will always be things that culture wants us to flex. Always. Because why? Romans 1 tells us. When you worship the creation rather than the Creator, you become futile in your thinking. And you exchange the truth about God for lies. What if your whole understanding of love has been built upon a lie and not built upon true love found in God? Now, here's what's going to happen. It happens in other countries and we must be careful. Everything that I've just said could be labeled as hate speech. It could be. But I want to make it crystal clear why it's not. Hate speech wants to put down. Jesus and His people want to pull up. Hate speech wants to hurt. Jesus and His people want to heal. Hate speech demeans. Jesus and His people ascribe worth and dignity because somebody's made in the image of God. Hate speech distances. I want nothing to do with you. Jesus and His people draw near. We are welcoming but not affirming of a lifestyle. Hate speech disagrees. And they disagree with hate. Jesus and His people, they disagree with love. Dear friends, this is not hate. This is love. It's love. Others will go on to say that if we talk this way, we are racist. Because this issue of same-sex attraction and gender dysphoria, these are the same thing as what the history of our country was filled with, the hating of someone else because of their ethnicity. Well, I've just explained how this is not hate. But I want to take another step further why this is not equivalent to racism. Because there it is again in Romans 1. This is a Romans 1 moment right here. They exchange the truth about God and His ways for a lie. It's just not true that your ethnicity is the same as your sexuality. It's just not true. It's not true. Despite what some reprehensible worldviews think, some races are not superior to other races. And some races are not inferior or more tainted with evil. That is to be categorically rejected as of the devil. One race is not superior to another. All are equal in God's sight. Race is not a moral choice. It is a gift to you from God. It's a gift. But with little to no proof, the claim is with your sexuality, you are completely born this way and you have no choice. We are born with inclinations, no doubt. No doubt. Some have inclinations towards same-sex attraction. Others have inclinations towards heterosexual attraction. But those inclinations do not determine your actions. Some people have inclinations to have sex outside of marriage. Does that make it permissible? 
There are even studies out there that says that's linked somehow into your makeup as a person that you want to betray your spouse and go have sex with others. Does that mean that you can act on that? No. The same with pedophilia. Does that mean you can act on that? No. Because acting on your sexuality is a choice that has right and wrong attached to it, morality attached to it. Dear friends, I want you to know God has a plan. And his plan is a good one. And here's what happens. When you talk about God's plan, it means there's boundaries. And right there, you've just said a bad word in our culture. My heart hurts. My heart hurts for friends that I have, and I know friends that you have. My heart hurts when I watch TV and I see people so confused. So confused because many think they have a choice about their gender or their sexuality. And that idea that they have a choice has led to massive insecurity and identity confusion. And people say, I am lesbian. I am gay. I am bisexual. I am pansexual. I am queer, transgender, and the the labels keep going. Those statements say a lot more than they do just about sexuality. They are labels that tell us two things. It's not first describing your sexuality, but your belief system. Let's take pansexual, for example. It's not first a description of sexuality, but of a worldview. A worldview that says, no one will tell me. No one will put boundaries on my sex life. No one. And so, I will not even allow a title to limit me. Pan means all. And so, I am the determiner of my own life. And anyone who tells me otherwise is an oppressor. That's what pansexual means. That is the worldview underneath the term. But Romans 1 tells us that this picture is worshiping the creation. It's worshiping self. It's making self a God rather than the Creator. And so He gives us over to this broken worldview. We receive the due penalty. It's confusion. It's when you think it's permissible. And it's when you think that labeling yourself gives you a sense of significance or worth or identity. We have identities, little I identities. I'm a male of European descent. You have all kinds of labels. I'm heterosexual male. Those are labels. We have identities. You have ethnic identities, sexual identities. Those right. But We have a super identity, if you want to use that phrase. Big letter I identity. It's a super identity that's greater than all of them. And the world misses it. If you worship the Creator, you receive His definitions of reality. You allow Him to tell you how to live. You serve Him. He defines your boundaries. And those boundaries give you deeper joy than you could ever imagine. Friends, it leads to worship, just like the passage said. This Creator is blessed forever. Amen. When you choose His ways, you're blessing Him, you're praising Him, you're worshiping Him. So this is God's plan. This is the Creator's plan. Your gender is not your choice. It's His. Your sexuality is not your choice. He defines the boundaries. It's the Creator's choice. It's God's choice. And sadly, much suicide, insecurity, and intense mental health struggles around this issue come because we've been told we have a choice. Genesis 1-3, Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 3, 1 Corinthians 7, Romans 7, all communicate God's plan. That is, 
Marriage, according to God's plan, is one man, one woman for life. And sex is meant to be preserved only in marriage as an expression of covenant-keeping love. Considering each other better than yourself. It's a way to communicate sexual sexuality in marriage. It's a way to communicate, I choose you exclusively, intimately, and deeply. That's God's plan. David Platt says this in his book, Counterculture, there is not one instance in all of God's Word where God advocates or celebrates sex outside of a marriage relationship between a husband and a wife. Not one. According to God, this is the safety zone in which sex is to be enjoyed. God creates this loving boundary to maximize the sexual experience in all of its richest meanings. So when the Bible is clear about homosexuality and really clear about the safe context of sex in heterosexual marriage, we should run to the safe place and trust Him. Here's one of my greatest fears. One of my greatest fears is that we get to this spot and some of you who struggle with same-sex attraction would close off and you would hear from this that you're not loved and you're not valuable and you would run away and you would not want to talk to us ever again. And some of you have, who have participated in homosexual sex, you will never come, you would be tempted to want to never come back and never engage in a conversation about this. I just want to say, we want to know you and we want to know your story. And we care for you as a person. And I just believe we can be bigger than cancel culture. I just believe we can. Which states this, when someone disagrees with you, you don't talk to them about the disagreement. You close them off, you shut them off, you call them names, and you run away. Surely we're bigger than this. And it's got to start in the church. Surely when we disagree, we stop canceling and we start talking. We stop tearing people down and we start relating to one another as people. I know some of you struggle with these things. And the church is meant to be a place where we bring our struggles to the Lord. And we watch Him bring healing from the inside out. We want you here. In relationship with us as a people. So that we can walk alongside you and show you a beautiful creator. That will satisfy you far deeper than any worship of a creation or a created thing. Here's the other great concern. The other great concern is that we would so hone in, which the passage does, right? So hone in on same-sex sex that we would miss we are all sexually broken. And what would happen as a result would be that you would be tempted to stand in self-righteousness. Yeah, that person needs to get their act together. And all you have done is made a mockery of the cross. Because in that moment, you're standing on your self-righteousness. Like, oh, I'm good here. And forgetting that the only thing you have that's good is called grace. That's what's made you good. That's what's allowed you to choose right things. It's grace. Your life is an offense to God apart from grace and you trusting in Him to make you new. And if you come out of here thinking about somebody else's sin, you've missed the Scriptures. Matthew 7 says Jesus calls us hypocrites. If we miss the fact that we are sexually broken. And so dear friends, some of you would say, why, why, why? Why would God make us battle with all these things? Struggle with all these things? Whether it be heterosexual lust, whether it be homosexual lust or same-sex attraction, why? I was watching a TV show the other day and it gave an illustration of a moth. Moth in this cocoon, it's got a little slit in it. And this person was walking by this moth and they thought, I want to set this thing free. 
And a person who understood Moss stopped the person and said, don't, don't open that up. Because what he could see is that inside it, it was moving around. And he says, because here's how it works. If you cut this open before it's strong enough to break it open itself, the moth will never be able to fly. So the struggle within the boundaries is actually the gift that helps the moth be who it is. Friends, we've all got struggles. And I just want you to know it's not a bad God who's given us that sense of weakness or has allowed us to experience that sense of weakness. But it's a good God that says it's for our struggle so that we struggle with Him. We develop a relationship with Him so that we get stronger and live our lives for Him. Here's the good news. There is true love. True love found at the cross. True love found in Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will never inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor idolaters, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor swindlers, nor swindlers, nor revilers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such what? Were. Some of you. That's not an identity. You trust in the Lord to do the work that you can't do to make you new and watch Him change you from the inside out no matter your sin struggle. And in so doing, what we find at the cross is a Savior who laid down His life for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple? A temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God with your body. The cross gives you hope that your body can glorify God. And so, He wants you to draw near to the cross and here's my prayer my prayer is that God would work in our church a community of true love a community of love that reflects Jesus where the ultimate goal of marriage is not sex but the glory of God demonstrated through love and friendship that the goal of relationship is not sex but it is friendship that marriage is not a means to sex but of covenant a covenant bond of love. And it is within marriage where sex is not seen as dirty, but as beautiful. A gift from God meant not only to be practiced according to His plan, it is meant to be practiced between one man and one woman for life. It is, as Keller says, super consensual. Only for people ready to give their whole lives to one another. That's the kind of culture I pray God would make. Where marriage is celebrated, fought for, and nurtured. Where singles are not second-class citizens, but family with close friendships with both sexes. Whether it be married or single individuals, old and young, seeking to help raise the next generation. According to Paul, there's even a betterness to singleness. That's what I pray our church is. I pray our church is meant not to be a place where people hide their struggles, but where they bring their struggles to Calvary, bring their struggles to the cross, and find forgiveness. And I pray that we as a church are not filled with self-righteous individuals, but we are filled with grace so that we can say, God, I want to glorify You with our body and that we would be a people who worship and serve the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank You that You have been with us. I thank You for the endurance of these precious people. As this is an opportunity to deal with an issue that is difficult, but is life-giving. I'm thankful that you do not avoid hard issues and that your word is not irrelevant to all that we face. And Father, I pray, I pray that we as a church would be a place, a people, where sex is celebrated within marriage, 
where married and singles are valued, where those who struggle with all kinds of sin, including same-sex temptation to same-sex actions, that God, they would feel supported and cared for and pointed to the Savior. And that we would all find that Your ways are best. God, deliver us from our worship disorder. Make us more and more like Your Son that we may be found worshiping You, the Creator, rather than the creation. I'm thankful that for Your people, You will not give us over. But You will keep us by that same leash of restraining grace. You will keep us in Your hands and You will hold us. For the work that You have begun in Your people, You will continue. And so I pray right now, in this moment, that all over this room where people have never trusted you, they would find today in this moment a repentance of sin and a clinging to Jesus, a turning to Christ and a declaration that He is their only hope. And in so doing, they would find a new identity of a child adopted, accepted, loved, fought for, not pushed away but drawn near to, prayed for. This is the blessing that we have in Christ Jesus. So God, save people, I pray. And may we as your children celebrate your great grace and lean on you day by day to look more like you. In this moment, we're just going to take a minute or so just to reflect. And I pray that God gives you one sense of takeaway, one thing to maybe turn from, one thing to celebrate in the goodness of God and the beauty of Jesus. Let's take a moment of reflection and then we will sing together.